Well, tonight we're in Genesis 14, and uh, just the last few verses, and then uh, we're going to try and get through 15 up to verse 21. And so, um, I didn't want to end last week on, on this little story about uh, this king of Sodom. So I figured we'd start it out with it tonight, and we'll go and get that out of the way, and then get into uh, one of the best chapters in the Bible, Genesis 15. Let's just read it, 14, and I think we're doing verses 21 through 24. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the, the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. That I will take nothing from uh, did that miss it? That I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner and Eshcol and Mamre, and let them take their portion. Um, just to finish out. Um, things we learn about Abraham and some of his integrity here too, but we're going to catch a little bit more about this king of Sodom. Back in 1313, um, uh, last chapter, we find that the, the Sodom was wicked. The place was a wicked place. Not just wicked, but wicked against the Lord. So it was intentional, you know, shaking your fist at the sky sort of a thing, I guess. Um, but uh, so from there, we know this king of Sodom, if he's king, well, he's a wicked king. Um, if he was a righteous king, there'd probably be some reforms. Um, and, you know, we also know that this is where Lot lives. This king, this king of Sodom, was Lot's king. Um, he doesn't care about all their goods. Remember when they were taken captive by the, you know, uh, Chedorlaomer and the other kings that came and took all these kings down at the, in the area of Sodom and Gomorrah. They uh, took them way up north and all their goods with them. And so Abraham goes and, you know, sets them free, uh, brings them back. And, but here this guy doesn't even want all his goods back. All he wants are the people, the persons, literally the souls uh, that are being brought back. Um, and it kind of sheds a little light. If he's a wicked king, you know, all these things that he would have had all his possessions he doesn't care about. He just wants the people. In verse 17, it says that he was there also when Melchizedek blesses Abram. He sees it. He was there. So what's implied about this king of Sodom? Well, if he is that wicked, I don't know what his use for these people are. You know, there's something that he wants these captives for that is probably not a good thing. Um, but he sees God's favor on Abram. And he realizes, well, gee, you know, God's blessing this guy. Remember, Abraham blesses those around him. So this, uh, first of all, this uh, king of Sodom is there when Melchizedek blesses Abram. And, uh, you know, he wants to buy a little bit of it for himself. And Abram kind of recognizes that. He goes, uh, you know, maybe because um, he wants to have Abram beholding to him a little bit. Maybe he wants to, you know, say, I can, you know, get away with a little wickedness if you kind of, you take these gifts for me. Well, what's the integrity of Abram? 
you know, he says, well, I serve the Most High God, creator of heaven and earth. In other words, nothing you have, Mr. King of Sodom, is worth anything, worth, is worth, worth touching for me. Abraham has his integrity. He has a genuine faith in God. And, you know, he's not going to let this guy take credit for how God blessed him and how God was the one who made him rich. And so we see how he responds to this wicked king who wants to contribute to his coffers and take some credit for it. Um, Abraham sees right through it. There are those so-called churches, if there's an application to this, um, whose contributors, you know, wealthy people who give to the churches, they want a little say-so in what goes on in that church. And these days in America, and I think around the world, these contributors begin to have complete influence over the message. They get to say what the gospel should be, what they think the good news is, you know, and what do you find? Well, now you have these churches flying the rainbow flag, which has got nothing to do with the flood. And uh, they are, they're, you know, they say they worship the Prince of Peace. They say they want unity. They want justice. They say they worship the God of righteousness. And um, yet they only condone, not only condone, but they promote the most bloodthirsty and murderous, violent, divisive, perverse movements on earth, abortion, homosexuality, the molestation of children, socialism, which is communism, which is humanism, which is man-centered worship, you know, man-centered pride, which the Bible tells us is that complete enmity against God. You can look this up um, in Romans chapter 1 if you haven't been through that passage before. Um, There's more on that. Though, when we get to Genesis 18 and 19, talking about Sodom and Gomorrah at that time. So moving on to Genesis 15. Again, that wasn't the way to end last week's study. <laughs> but it's out there. I mean, you all know it. You all see it. Um, Mary's written tracks on some of the things, the doctrines that are floating around out there. And, and you can tell that they're just, they're, they're, bowing to the money that's coming in and they want to keep the money coming. They want to keep the, the, the big crowds coming so they pander to everything and it turns into perversion eventually. Um, but let's read through... Um, I guess I want to read through the whole thing and then we'll come back to segments at a time. Chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram says, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now towards heaven, and count the stars, and if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord and accounted it to him for righteousness. And then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, O Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? 
And so he said to him, bring me three, a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And then he brought all these to him, and he cut them in two down the middle, placed each opposite each other, each side opposite each other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, well, Abram drove them away. And But now when the sun had gone down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. And then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they shall serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass, when the sun went down, it was dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I will have given this land from the river Egypt to the great river Euphrates. And the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Kadmonites and the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. So is chapter 15. Abraham still has no children. He starts to mention some possible alternatives. How about Eliezer? Let's give that a try and see if we can get this show on the road. Something for God to think about. But God says no. He tells him he will do what he said he was going to do. And he reminds them of the vastness of the multitudes, if you can count the stars. And back then, there was no wash from city lights or anything else like that. You could see all the stars, and it was a vast blanket. If you've been in any parts of the world or up northern Wisconsin where there's a few city lights, you can see the stars. You can't count them. It's, uh, besides, the earth is rotating. You've got to keep up. Um, so it's more than that, though, because it's the seed. Remember that was promised to Eve? This is more than just um, Abram getting a descendants. It's Abram being the one that this seed would be coming through. Uh, And also Eve. It's not just Abram. It's got to be Eve. And in the line, though he was established, it would be the coming Messiah. It has to be Abraham and Sarah. And we'll see that as we go here. But verse 6, if you haven't marked it already, I'm going to propose that verse 6 is the key verse to the whole Bible. I'm going to propose that verse 6 is probably the most important verse in the Bible. And we'll see if that comes around here a little bit. But the word covenant that he talks about, that word covenant means cut. just simply means cut. And it means cut the pieces the way they're going to be. In other words, a covenant is, this is how it's going to be. It's a matter-of-fact thing. Verses 7 and 8, um, God brought Abraham and Sarah out of his family, out of his country, out of his father's household because of a promise that God had intended to keep. He brought them out of the land of the Chaldeans and all. And this was all so that he could keep his promise with him. And that promise, again, that seed he's going to use Abraham and his descendants to restore and to reconcile and to redeem mankind back to himself. 
Now, verses 9 through 21, um, this is the, the animals that he lays out, cuts them in half, and it says when the sun went down, he lays out the sacrifices and keeps away the vultures, but then a deep sleep falls on him. And it says, behold, in other words, look upon, gaze at this, study it, you know, see this, don't miss it. What's really happening? And it says a horror and a great darkness. And I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like that, where you have, uh, you wake up in the middle of the night or something, and you just realize that whatever's going on is something more terrifying and, and more horrifying than you've ever felt before, or... Maybe it's just something in a dream. I don't know. But at this time, he says, behold. In other words, look at this. This is serious. Abraham is not going to forget this. No more trying to see if Eliezer would work out. This is going to be with Sarah. Now, next chapter, Sarah tries her own alternatives, and it doesn't work out so well either. Um, but God says, no, certainly, that this is certain. And again, this is the way it's going to be. This is a covenant. He says, your descendants... Not Eleazar's, not anybody else, your descendants. Be certain of that. They're going to go into slavery for 400 years, but they will return. He says, so this is the land that I've given to you for your descendants. And he says, this is my word. This is my promise. This is my covenant with you, Abram. The book of Exodus gives us the account of the children of Israel coming out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery. If you want to turn to Exodus 24, um, in chapter 2 it says, God had remembered his covenant with Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, and he brings them out of the land. In Exodus 20 through 23, God gives the Ten Commandments and all the law uh, detailed in the rest of Exodus and Leviticus. In 23 verses 31 and 33, he commands them not to make any covenants with any other king or any other uh, of the people living in the lands or with any of their gods specifically. But in chapter 24, verses 1 through 18, God affirms his covenant, but he actually gives, makes another covenant. This is not the same covenant that he made with, with Abram. So reading just 18 verses here. Um, now that he said, now he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Abram, I'm sorry, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy of the elders, and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. And so Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the words of the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. I want to put a question mark there because it's, you're Really? Um, and Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. The book of the covenant is all the Ten Commandments and everything that we saw up until chapter 24, 
uh, we didn't see it, read it tonight, but that's what you'll see in, in Exodus 20, or Exodus 1 through 23, and then details in the chapters following. But then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, all that, and he said, and they said, all the Lord has said we will do and will be obedient. And then Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. And then Moses went up, and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet as were paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. And on the nobles of the children of Israel he did not lay his hands, so they saw God, and they ate and drank. And the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be there, and I will give you the tablets of stone and the law and the commandments which I have written, that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up the mount, up to the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, Wait for us until we come back. Indeed, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man has difficulty, let him go to them. And Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord rested on the Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days, and on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of this mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. Verse 3, it says, judgments. This is how it is. Again, what are the Lord's judgments? The Lord's saying, this is how it is. This is God's word. These are his judgments. This is the law and the commandments. They said they would do it all and they would be obedient. Now he builds an altar and burnt offerings and sprinkles the blood on the people. And And they saw the God of Israel standing on sapphire pavement as a clear as clear as the sky, and uh, they witnessed the glory of God. It was like a consuming fire. And when Moses received the Ten Commandments, there was thunder. And back in uh, chapter 20, there was thunder, there was lightning, there was smoke, um, there was great darkness that fell on, on them, on Moses at the time on the mountain. And it's just like it was with, with Abram. You know, there was a darkness, there was a terror, there was a, um, a horror, a great darkness. Um, this is important. Chapter um, 15 of Genesis, verse 6, if you haven't marked it and we talked about that, I believe it's the most important verse in the Bible. Um, this is serious. The Lord has confirmed it with this great cloud, with this fire, with this you know, thunder, and so it's something that gets their attention, just like it got Abram's attention when he was in that deep sleep. If you want to turn to Galatians 3, the brethren in Galatia had believed the gospel, the finished work of Jesus on the cross. But then these, uh, these Jews, the religious Jews, or what they'd called Judaizers, had come along and they would bring with them you know, the law and they would try and bring these new believers back under the law. A lot of Gentiles were getting saved. And so they were trying to bring 
these guys under the law, and so Paul has to write Galatians to settle a few things straight. But in doing so, in chapter 3, he makes this contrast. He talks about the covenant that was made with Abram, Abraham and the law that was given to Moses 430 years later, and that's known as the Mosaic Covenant. And this is the most important difference in how people approach God. Here you've got the guys that believed in the finished work of the cross and the grace um, and the salvation through Jesus Christ and his blood, and you've got the guys that are coming to the Lord with works, coming to the Lord with uh, keeping the law, And so he writes Galatians, picking it up in verse 6. You know, and it is the difference between salvation, eternal life, and the lake of fire forever. It's serious. And um, there's a question, why would God give two covenants? But, verse 6 through 24, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, Therefore know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. And so then those who are of the faith are blessed with believing Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written. What did they say they were going to do? We're going to keep all the things that we saw, and we're going to be obedient in the book of the law and to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the law shall or the, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. In other words, if you're going to keep the law, that's how you're, that's how you're going to make it. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. He says, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is easy, uh, though it is only one man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed... No one annuls it or adds to it. In other words, if you understand this just even between men, you know, once it's a covenant, you can't change it. Now to Abram and his seed were the promise made. He does not say to seeds as, a, as though it were many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul that covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for only one, but God is only one. And in the law then against the promises of God, or I should say, is the law then against the promises of God? Well, certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, well, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ 
might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. And then after faith has come, we are no longer under that tutor. Two covenants he's talking about, Paul's talking about here. The covenant with Abraham, all nations would be blessed, meaning God would justify the Gentile by faith in Jesus Christ, and it was Abraham's seed, not seeds. It was the Messiah. And also the point he makes is it's 430 years later. Well, is that going to you know, invalidate the law or invalidate the first one? This, this one came first. It was validated before the law. It was ratified by God when the pillar, passed, the pillar of fire passed through the, the halves that he had cut the animals and that Abraham had laid out. And it says the inheritance was granted by a promise, God's promise. God grants it. It wasn't by the law, not the inheritance. It's not contrary to the law, he says, but he's making a contrast between the two. The promise made to Abraham imparts life, he says. It's given to those who believe. It justifies the believer by faith. Now contrast that with the law of Moses, or what they call the Mosaic Covenant. You make a list of what we just learned in Galatians. It says those that are um, those of the works of the law are under a curse. It's like out of the gate. Cursed is everyone who does not abide in all of it. It says no one is justified by the law before God. Nobody's able to keep it. The law is not faith. Well, you're doing the work instead of believing God will fulfill the promises that He made. You're keeping this law. You're trying to do the performing rather than believing that he's going to bring it to pass. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, he says. He became the curse for us. Again, 430 years after the promise. What does that mean? Well, he says it does not invalidate that covenant with Abraham. God does not change. God made that promise. It does not nullify that promise. It's not the basis for the inheritance The law is not the basis for the inheritance. That's hard to get around our heads because he came now and gave Moses all these laws and ordinances and the Ten Commandments, this moral law that we look to today. And we'll see how that plays out in our lives. But, uh, you know, that is not what the law was for. It wasn't to, to confirm the inheritance. Abraham lived to a good old age and died before God gave him the land. No law Abraham kept made this happen. It was a promise made by God. What does it say the law was for then? It says it was added for the transgressions, because of transgression, until the seed of promise would come. It's not contrary to the promises, the land and the descendants, but it does not impart life like the promise that he made to Abram. The law does not impart life. I hope you're kind of keeping up with this. There's a point to all this. Um, because, well, without giving away the rest of the study, we, we, we have such a tendency to want to keep the law and to have our own righteousness and to have our own... Um, it's, a, it's a form of pride. <clears throat> but it does not impart life. In fact, it pronounces the death penalty. Why? Well, because it says the law shuts up everybody under sin. In other words, nobody can keep it. And all it does is sit there and point the finger at us and tell us we're shot. 
we're, no, we're not going to make it. And the reason, so that, it points to, so that the reason is that we find faith, that we see and have faith in Jesus Christ. This, we see our need. It shuts up everybody until faith is re- revealed. There are those that say they never committed adultery. Well, but Jesus said if you look at a, uh, another to lust, then you've already, already committed adultery in your heart. So there were those that would, would bring these standards. I've never done this. I've never done that. You know people like that. You may have been somebody like that. Before I got saved, I thought I was a pretty good guy. And until um, I was told that, well, it's better to be hot or cold, but lukewarm, he'll spit you out of his mouth. That might not be the most gracious way to draw somebody to the Lord. But, uh, and it is his loving kindness that draws us. But sometimes we need to know that we fall short. In fact, I think before you can know you need a Savior, you need to know that you're not saved, that you would be uh, lost and, and uh, would have hell as your future if you died. And until you realize that you fall short. And that's what the law is for. That's what he's saying right here. These are those that say that they may have never sinned. But he says, look at the heart. You know, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So what's the law? It's a tutor. It's a teacher. It leads us to Christ. It proves to us that we fall short and that we need a Savior from the death penalty. Now you can see why the religious leaders were chasing Paul around. Every time he'd go to a city, you know, um, they despised him for preaching salvation by faith and not by works because they had a congregation. They had, they had people under their control because they, you can do so much. You've got to show up if you don't stop eating fish on Friday. If you don't make it to Mass, what? Oh, I'm sorry, we're talking about Israel um, back then. This was before that. Um, but it proves that we fall short. I was in Jerusalem years ago and, and um, on a trip. We did some trips a while back. In fact, Chris Quintana, I don't know if he's still there. He's over there right now. Um, but uh, we were in this center square right in the old city, and there's this little gift shop there. The guy's name is Moishi, which is basically Moses for um, modern, or for the English way to say Moses, I guess, but Moshi or Moisha or something. But uh, he had a little gift shop, and you know he was a Jew. I believe he, he might even be been a teacher or a rabbi, but he had this gift shop, and he was friendly to all his customers, and obviously many, many of his customers were Christians because the Christians go and tour Jerusalem. And uh, so he would be happy to strike up conversations. And, and I, I go in there, and, and I just start uh, talking to him, and boy, this guy's happy to talk. And your, your heart is for these people that they come to know the Lord, and so you're, you're there waiting for an opportunity just like we are in our lives today. Is there any way that we could open this guy's eyes? Well, he heard, heard it from everybody. And, uh, and he was happy to, to talk about so many things. And he didn't even have a problem with Jesus, you know, if you want to talk about uh, the things that Jesus taught, because many Jews do believe that Jesus is or was a good teacher. Messiah, Son of God, eh, maybe not. But uh, so, you know, we were having a great conversation and all about things, and I, I got around to Paul, and all of a sudden he gets kind of serious. And, um, and I says, well, Paul studied under Gamaliel, and now he started to get angry. Because here, Gamaliel is somebody that they still revere. They still believe. And Paul was a turncoat. All of a sudden, he was, he was a, being trained to be a Pharisee. And it's the same today as it was back then. It is 
Paul was persecuted for teaching the gospel. Much like the words today of these um, red-letter Christians, they like the teachings of Jesus. It's good enough, but it turns into legalism. They turn it into, what would Jesus do? Rather than, well, what did Jesus say? And by his Holy Spirit through the rest of the New Testament. There's a lot more letters than the, just the red letters. But it always comes around to this legalism, this works-based thing. And, you know, as much as it was fun to see people going around with what would Jesus do, you start to think, wait a minute, I don't need to speculate in this situation what Jesus would do. What did he say? What does his word say? That's the important thing. So if you got one of those, put WDJS, what did Jesus say? That's probably a little more appropriate. It's including the doctrine of the apostles written by the Holy Spirit, and that is just as much and as important, and sometimes even more so, especially now we're talking about the covenant, um, as it was um, the red letters, if you take them just by themselves. The truth about Abraham's faith in God for the promised seed, the Messiah, those are the things that are offensive to the Jews and the religious type. And it says they still to this day because they're blinded. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. But these are the covenants made with Israel. Both of these covenants, one with Abraham and one with Moses, both made with Israel. But if you want to go to Jeremiah 31, both of these covenants talk about Abraham and the seed and all the nations shall be blessed. Jeremiah 31, long after Moses, in, in verse 31 he says, Behold, the days are coming. This is something yet future, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, specifically. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt that we just studied. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law into their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. And thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and the stars for light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall cease, shall also cease from being a nation before me forever." And thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundation of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. In other words, they got it coming, but he's not going to do it because he's the faithful one to them. But even, you know, you love it when the Lord says, until the sun goes away, until the earth goes away, until you can search out the heavens and see everything that's there and figure out what's at the center of the earth, um, he's going to keep his promises. And he says his seed. Now he's talking about a new covenant. 
If you look at the contrasts, he talks about the Mosaic Covenant also. The Old Covenant, he says it was made with their fathers when they came out of Egypt. And he says back in that day, which is just that period of time, because it took 40, 40 years, my covenant which they broke, he says. So he already is saying they couldn't keep it. God said he was a husband to Israel, and this is important. You know, we're the bride of Christ, right? The church is the bride of Christ. A lot of people don't realize that there's a difference there between the church and Israel. And God will be faithful. He will, again, like he says, until the, the heavens are gone and the earth is gone, he's going to keep his promises as the husband Israel. Now, we are the bride of Christ, and we are of that seed also. But you always got to remember, like Romans says, we're grafted in. We have not replaced Israel. In fact, he says in Romans, don't think too highly of yourselves because he can take you out just as easily as he puts you in. And Israel, though, they're the root, they're the trunk, and he can graft them in, and he does. Um, The Old Covenant says they would use the law to teach their neighbors and their brothers to know the Lord. That's how they used to do it. Well, the New Covenant, he says, the day is coming, and it's yet future. I'm going to make it with Israel and Judah But then he says, just with Israel, by the time he's done, not according to the law that's out of Egypt. Now, this one sounds like it's replacing that that law. Made with the house of Israel, no more divided Judah and northern ten tribes. And we talk about this being in Ezekiel 36. Um, Let's go there real quick. Um, If you want to go to Ezekiel 36. Talked about Sunday a little bit. We're talking about it men's prayer on Saturday. Um, beginning in Ezekiel 33, 34, all the way up to to, uh, the rest of the book, he's talking about Israel coming back into the land. And that did not happen until May 14, 1948. When they came back in the land, it wasn't split between the ten tribes in the north and Judah, and that's my point. It was the one nation, Israel, no longer divided. And he mentions that. And he brings that together in Ezekiel 36. Uh, but in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do so. Notice he's talking about it being in the spirit. And he's talking about that stone heart. Now he's given him a flesh heart, not a fleshly as in carnal type of thing, but a soft heart, a living heart, not a heart of stone. But it says God's spirit causes us to walk in his statutes and judgments. And uh, when we were reading through Jeremiah, um, let's go to Second Corinthians 3 real quick. And I guess we'll be talking about Jeremiah again, but... 2 Corinthians 3.3, 3, he says he'll put his spirit in them. No longer need a man to teach one another because his spirit will lead them, guide them in all truth. And um, verse 3, it says, Clearly you are the epistles of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart, speaking of, of uh, Ezekiel. 
But he's, you know, what it's saying here is that when people read you, they're literally reading the Bible. When people see your lives, he says, you are the epistle. You're the letter. You're the ones that are, are being read by the world. If you go back in, in just verse 2, it says, you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. So as believers, we might be the only Bible that people see. You, you hear that a lot, but this is where it actually is said. You, in fact, are what are read by all men. And it's because the Spirit's been working in your hearts. Look at Jeremiah back, um, it, just the list of things we learn there. It's not according to the law of Egypt. It's made with the house of Israel, no more divided northern tribes in Judah. And put in their minds, he says, written on their hearts, he will be their God. They will be his people. They shall know the Lord from the least of them to the greatest. And he says he forgives their iniquity and their sins are forgotten. And it says the seed will not cease to be a nation before him. Why is Genesis 15:6 the most important verse in the Bible? If you want to turn to Romans 4. Romans 4, verses 1 through 8 says, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, well, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are counted, not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. In verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. In that psalm, 32, David's honest admission that he would never be able to cover his sin. So he says, blessed is the man whose sin is not imputed to him. Abraham was not justified by works of the flesh, his own strength. He says that right there. His faith is what made him righteous. Again, what I believe is the, the most important verse in the Bible. And if you were to have a key verse of the whole Bible, I think that would be it. Now, he says, works pay wages for which God would be in debt to us for. Well, that's never going to be. It's our lawless deeds that are forgiven. We're the ones that have the debt. We're the ones that would be completely uh, out of it without his forgiveness. Sin is not imputed, it says. The word imputed is reckoned, counted, computed, calculated, weighed, judged, matched with some equivalent. In other words, whatever you got over here, I got silver over here that'll balance that out. And you put it in the scales. That word imputed is, you know, it's going to be, you know, dollar for dollar here. Whatever you've done, you're getting that right back. Blessed is the man whose sin is not imputed. Dollar for dollar, getting it right back. That's what he's saying. Um, back in Galatians, um, Looking at just the the first nine verses, just what he says in reference to that passage, Genesis fifteen six. 
just in chapter 3. He says, O foolish Galatians. <clears throat> Again, this is these guys that came around after Paul and started, uh, you know, these Judaizers, started getting them back under the law, started getting them doing the works and, and doing the, the, the religious aspect of the Mosaic law once again after they had been saved by grace, by the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And he says, Old foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus clearly was portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit of uh, receive the spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of the faith? Well, what did we read earlier? The law doesn't give life. The law proves that you should die, but what gave life was the promise. And by faith, Abraham had faith, and because they believed, because you believed, you've received the Holy Spirit. The day that you believed on the name of Jesus to save you from your sins, to die in your place, is the day that you receive the Holy Spirit and have been sealed for all eternity until we get there to be with him and well beyond. And it's just the, that's the simplest thing, and we'll see that towards the end here. But this is, uh, are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect in the flesh? And it's funny because people myself included, try and do that. We've been saved and we know it, that we couldn't have done anything of our own to do it. And yet when something goes wrong, we think, well, I've got to patch that up. I've got to make that right. I've got to... And there's some, something to that. We should make restitution. We should make things right as far as we're able, but it's not gaining us anything before the Lord. It's not making us more righteous. People want to add a little bit of their own blood to the cross. They want to add a little bit of their own sweat. You can't add anything to the cross. And so when you do these things, you know, do them as unto the Lord, out of gratitude, out of worship, out of love. Like we talked about Sunday, fear is a lousy motivator. Love is the best motivator. And not that we're adding anything to the cross whatsoever. And that's important. That's this whole study. He says in verse 4, Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? In other words, are you guys completely lost here now again? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, how does he do it? If it's by the, the, the works of the law. Or is it by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, therefore, we read this before, but therefore know that only those who are of the faith are the sons of Abraham. And the Scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith having preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, and you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of the faith are the blessed and are the uh, blessed with believing like Abraham. Um, Christ was crucified. We receive the Holy Spirit by faith, by the hearing of the word of the Lord. And the Spirit is the account of righteousness for us. And we are the all nations. Again, by faith, um, James twenty or James two verse twenty two and twenty three are the only other places in the New Testament where uh, Genesis fifteen six is quoted directly, and there he uses Abraham as an example of faith that it had a proof in its obedience, even to the point where he sacrificed Isaac um, in faith, believing God that God would still keep his promise. 
So the final question really here is, how is a person saved? Well, what we just learned is by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, who died for our sins on the cross. Do we have a covenant with God? Well, we got his promise. We got his eternal life. We have righteousness. We have justification by faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. A covenant that has been validated and ratified by God when again there was a thick darkness and an earthquake once again when he hung on the cross. Once again a sober thing, a horror and a darkness, a deep darkness. They say that it was a darkness that could be felt. And in other words, there was something going on that was a horror. There was something that was Again, gravely serious, never to be forgotten. Once again, just like the mountain with Moses, just like Abram, there was a darkness. It had been ratified by God on the cross. The veil was torn in two from top to bottom. Man was reconciled. Man was restored, redeemed back to God by the promised seed, just like Eve in the garden, just like Abram down through all of the nation Israel. The Messiah was the Messiah of Israel. He's that seed. You know, we are that nation of the seed of the woman. Seed of Abraham, by faith, not by works. And he says, finally in John, they asked him, what are the works of the new covenant? What are the things that we have to do? What is the, the works for us? What's our side of the covenant? You know, the Lord did all of that, his side of things. What's our side? And John says, um, they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe on him who he sent. And that just leaves the question for us. Are we going to do the works of God? Or are we going to do the works of the law? Are we trying to keep the law? Or are we just going to do the works of God and believe on him whom he sent? Most important verse in the Bible, Genesis fifteen six. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's all I got. Amen. Lord, we just thank you so much. Um, we're so unworthy and uh, we know that uh, we'd be nothing without your grace and your love for us and coming to lay down your life and shed your blood for us. And so it makes it easy for us to worship you and sing to you, to have joy, Lord, and to be willing to share what you've shown us. It makes it easy when we keep our eyes on you and, and we continue to remember all that you've done for us. And Lord, we thank you that the only works that are on us is to simply believe that you are he who he sent to do this. You are the seed that was sent. And the promise came through you. Oh, Lord, we love you. And we're just looking forward to being with you and having you open up so much more in all this as you open your word up through eternity, Lord. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.